we can discuss the merits of this, what have you. I mean, it could have, you know, a, you know, a massive default could have collapsed the entire global banking system. Mm-hmm. Um, but what certainly happened was the IMF became complicit in bailing out banks directly mm-hmm. or indirectly. The saying goes that when the uh, when you owe the bank, say, hundred thousand dollars and you can't pay, you're in trouble. If you owe the bank $100 million and you can't pay, the bank's in trouble. Because suddenly, Mm -hmm. the bank is looking at bankruptcy. Two podcast. This is the first episode in a three-part series on the IMF's relationship with formerly colonized nations. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Christopher Sabatini on the IMF's relationship with Bolivia and other Latin American countries. Sabatini is a senior fellow for Latin America at Chatham House and a former lecturer at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. To start off, could you just give a little background on the adoption of the Structural Adjustment Program and the taking on of IMF loans by Bolivia in the 1980s? What happened generally in the 1970s was a massive um, outflow of capital from private banks, mm-hmm. due in large part to uh, basically excess and savings. The banks had to recycle and invest somewhere. And there's this um, myth, if you will, that uh, Governments never go bankrupt, so you can just loan them money. At the time, um, those banks were um, flush with cash, and interest rates were relatively low. So governments like uh, Bolivia and others um, took out uh, uh, massive loans, loans, often denominated in dollars. What happened was the inflow of capital to the banks dried up. Same time, the U.S. in an effort to address issues of inflation, raised interest rates. And when interest rates were increased in the United States, capital flocked back to the United States because they could have a better return on their investment. And those interest rates then meant, those rising interest rates meant that for countries like Bolivia that had taken out these loans in dollars, what they were paying back was significantly larger than what they had planned, irrespective of the fact they had already gone uh, severely into debt. And so what happened was starting in 1982 was Mexico and then later Brazil and other countries declared uh, default, uh, which threatened to uh, undermine these banks and what was the, uh, the private banks. And the answer was to, uh, in, a, in a, a bending of the original intent of the Bretton Woods system, of the World Bank and the IMF, mm-hmm. was to have them become lenders of last resort. In this case, not to prop up currency devaluation as it was was originally intended, but Mm -hmm. to bail out these countries from these bad loans. And the guarantee was that the IMF would lend these uh, governments money to help them repay their debt. But at the same time, they would come with a recipe of necessary economic reforms that were intended to get their fiscal houses back in order Mm -hmm. so that they could pay back those loans. And by doing so, that was sort of the good housekeeping seal of approval uh, that a lot of that was intended to let private banks go back in and invest 
uh, with the assurances that they won't default and that those banks were indirectly, uh, those countries rather, and their loans were indirectly or directly backed by the IMF. Mm-hmm. Could you also talk a little bit about the structural adjustment programs? So the structural adjustment programs that IMF um, uh, recommended, it, it's sort of uh, bitter medicine, if you will, for these loans and for ongoing guarantees for future loans, um, came with what was came to be termed uh, the Washington Consensus. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea is several sort of standard recommendations and policy reforms in the, in the Washington Census. One was free floating exchange rates. So uh, basically uh, end overvalued exchange rates, um, which uh, would, would basically make the price of imports more expensive um, and have other effects. The second is to um, roll back uh, fiscal spending to, to tie in some ways uh, the government issuance of a currency uh, basically printing of bills mm-hmm. to uh, some fiscal anchor. Uh, the third is to float interest rates. Uh, the uh, fourth is to privatize, well, generally speaking, to get the country's fiscal house in order to stop overspending uh, from the budget so that they would have extra cash to be able to uh, pay back these banks and to establish themselves in good credit footing uh, with the international community. And part of that also was shedding off um, uh, inefficient uh, um, revenue losing industries, enterprises. Uh, so whether it's oil or what have you, these were very state centric uh, economies. And then to liberalize uh, markets internally, whether it's banking uh, and other and reducing price controls uh, and the like and, and price and wage controls as well to be able to let the market do its work. That was the standard recipe of, mm-hmm. of packages, of measures that the IMF recommended as a precondition to getting its loans. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened in Bolivia was pretty much along that standard. Yeah, um, Bolivia, I mean, Bolivia was, was uh, had, had um, taken out an, an enormous amount of debt. At one point it had some of the highest per capita debt in all of South America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and because of its um, both, well, a combination of factors, one being the, the uh, loss of fiscal control of the government and also the um, uh, printing of currency to be able to uh, sustain uh, the market, to sustain its currency and to sustain uh, uh, its own public debt domestically, uh, you had massive hyperinflation. At one point, I believe, uh, inflation reached 40,000% in Bolivia. Oh, At one wow. point, this may be apocryphal, but I've heard this from several sources, Bolivia's number one import was its own currency. Mm. <laughs> well, because it couldn't print its own currency. Mm-hmm. Which also meant that it didn't wasn't getting any of the benefits of storage, which means it usually when, you know, the dollar, the U.S. prints a dollar, it doesn't cost a dollar to print a dollar. So it gets benefits. Mm-hmm. It's getting yeah. basically a profit on that dollar. That wasn't true in the case of Bolivia. Mm. They were losing so money on printing money. Exactly. Exactly. It was just, you know, it's basically getting the, the Xerox machine going downstairs in the basement of the central bank and just churning it out in order to pay the government's debts domestically, mm-hmm. uh, which was unsustainable. Um, and uh, uh, so in, in many cases, that was sort of the crux of, for many, for many, the, uh, the need for IMF reforms. Mm-hmm. So when these loans came in and when these structural adjustment program was implemented, who benefited, both in Bolivia and abroad internationally, from 
the implementation of the, the structural adjustment program? Well, so let's just let's look at this in two levels. The first is who benefited from the structural adjustments specifically, mm-hmm. uh, and the first is is that um, you know banks primarily benefited. Um, banks could suddenly loan money and didn't have to worry about inflation outstripping their interest rates. So banks are going to benefit. Um, who didn't benefit though often were uh, businesses. Um, business, especially parastatals, the, the formerly owned or fully or partially owned uh, state companies that had to be uh, uh, based privatized or sold off. Mm-hmm. They're often sold off for cheap. Uh, and of course, when uh, by, whether it was the water companies, telephone companies, gas companies, uh, infrastructure, all of this stuff was uh, you know, in Argentina. They even privatized the zoos, which is bizarre. Oh wow! Um, suddenly you had a situation where they, you know, they had, they had to turn a profit on these companies. Mm-hmm. And so they had to lay off workers because they were overemployed. In fact, mm-hmm. a lot of these companies have become a way of absorbing workers so as to prevent social discontent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was long overdue. It was a bill that came due and they had to lay off these workers. And so um, workers were, were severely damaged. These companies also, many of them, because I guess another component of the Washington census was reducing tariff barriers, opening up mm-hmm. the country's uh, barriers to trade, borders to trade. Um, and many of these companies were simply not sustainable. They had existed uh, under the benefit of, of uh, high tariff barriers or other forms of subsidies, either explicit or implicit. Uh, once you remove those, once they were actually forced to compete against uh, imports and forced to compete at market uh, prices, they simply weren't sustainable. And so they also, many of them just collapsed uh, or shed massive employees, or some of them also, we saw this in the case of Bolivia when uh, such essential services like water uh, were privatized, the state subsidy, perhaps imperfectly, um, had served as an incentive to uh, help ensure the coverage of um, uh, poor neighborhoods to get water because, of course, it isn't uh, you know it isn't profitable to extend mm-hmm. water services to some neighborhoods where either the uh, capacity of residents are is is low in terms of being able to pay and they're far flung communities so the infrastructure to deliver water there is already high mm-hmm. to begin with. So you also had with this privatized services you had loss of employment, you had uh, loss of local locally generated manufacturing and, and the like. And then you also had loss of lower level services. It's also true in telephones. Now, in, in, if you were lucky enough, who benefited? And people also benefited. As I mentioned, there are the banks who benefited from a more market-based uh, interest rate approach or led to more market-based interest rates. Who also benefited um, there were a number of people. In, in, in Argentina, which I know better because that was the subject of my dissertation, mm-hmm. you had a group of, of um, basically corrupt uh, financial advisors and banks who were hedging uh, on the uh, evaluation of the currency, and they had what was called the bicycle, which was they would take money, invest it, and roll it over, and basically uh, um, they would leverage uh, or basically arbitrage uh, the currency against the dollar or other baskets mm-hmm. of currencies. The same thing I'm assuming happened uh, in Bolivia. Bolivia was quite common. Um, who also benefited uh, were obviously the the private banks, uh, and in two ways. The first is you know, well. The saying goes that when the uh, when you owe the bank, say, hundred thousand dollars and you can't pay, you're in trouble. If you owe the bank a hundred million dollars and you can't pay, the bank's in trouble because suddenly mm-hmm. the bank is looking at bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So what basically what happened? We can discuss the merits of this, what have you. I mean, it could have 
you know, a, you know, a massive default could have collapsed the entire global banking system. Mm-hmm. Um, but what certainly happened was the IMF became complicit in bailing out banks directly mm-hmm. or indirectly. Um, and so the banks certainly benefited, even in the case where what were, many of them were doing was selling their their loans on secondary markets. They would take this loan and say, look, I've got a loan for $100. I only think I'm going to collect maybe 20 cents on the dollar, but I'll, or I think I'm going to collect 50 cents on the dollar, but I'll sell it to you mm-hmm. for 40 cents on the dollar. We'll write off the lo- losses. And so they developed a secondary debt market. And those people just cleaned up. I mean, this, mm-hmm. it became this sort of what are now called um, vulture funds. They would snap mm-hmm. up this distressed debt and then you know go to the IMF and have the IMF uh, pay them back for at least mm. what they had, or, um, what they had imagined would be its return on their investment. So they definitely benefited. Um, and then, of course, there were there were some businesses with international ties that could weather the storm to certainly benefit. And of course, you know, as we're seeing, we're seeing we're aware of it much more now, and we may never know the extent of corruption that occurred in these cases. But mm. you know, they were, you know, you, you need only sort of see some of the levels of houses, the construction, and the like that were, that went up during the 70s and 80s. To realize that you know a lot of these assets were not productively invested mm-hmm. in the economy uh, in a way that could have made uh, it more sustainable. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask about how Ava Morales came in and kind of rejected and broke ties with the IMF. Um, but before we get into that, could you talk a little bit about how Bolivia got from the place that they were in the 1980s and in the 70s with the IMF to through the through the '90s and the early 2000s to the beginning of the Morales presidency. Well, there are a lot of factors. The first is, you know, there's there's a saying that uh, you know Jeffrey Sachs at the time was a, an advocate, a professor at Columbia University, was an advocate for these sorts of, of um, big bang uh, economic reform programs to get the pain over with quickly. You know, a shock, super shock to the system, but then you immediately you hope write the ship of the economy and it can continue. Mm-hmm. Um, as the joke went, uh, after before Jeff, Jeff Sachs, um, Bolivia was a poor country with hyperinflation. After Jeff Sachs, it didn't have hyperinflation, but it was still poor. Mm-hmm. And basically these issues of controlling uh, rampant inflation and fiscal um, profligacy by the government were uh, made for good basic macroeconomics, but they didn't address the structural elements of poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's effectively what happened. And so what you had was the in Bolivia, you did have the return of economic growth in some cases. You had the um, you had a much more rational uh, allocation of resources within the Bolivian economy. But you had, uh, first of all, a reduction in anti-poverty measures. Um, you had the uh, weakening of the state. Uh, one of the other sort of secondary set of reforms that came with this wave of neoliberal reforms was decentralization. And the president at the time, uh, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, Goni, um, implemented these massive decentralization reforms. And they were important, not just because they fit very nicely into this washed consensus of shrink the state, get it less involved, but it also suddenly decentralized politics. And up until then, Bolivia, despite having a number of so-called revolutions, was still largely governed by a very Eurocentric based, racially speaking, uh, political elite. Uh, And what you had when you decentralized to these local units and the local elections and resources to match is you suddenly had a much better uh, 
though fragmented reflection of the Bolivian populace in politics. And that included indigenous parties, regional parties, splinter parties. You have, I believe, and I may be wrong on this. You have, well, let's just say this. You have hundreds of indigenous language, languages spoken in, in, in mm. Bolivia. Aymara, Quechua, Quechua, um, uh, yeah, it, 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 um, it goes on. And so consequently, suddenly you had, um, you know, all of these local communities had a voice in politics and mm-hmm. with it sort of a way of expressing popular disgust with uh, the, the political system. Mm-hmm. Uh, combined with that, and this is different from the IMF, is you had the United States pushing for a, uh, an anti-drug, anti-coca policy that involved uh, spraying coca crops. Mm-hmm. And Evo Morales, who would later rise to fame, as you know, uh, was the leader of a coca growers union. Coca is mm. grown in Bolivia, obviously for cocaine. Um, and that's where it's, you know, it's the most money is made. But it's mm. also, it, it, has, it has traditional uh, uses, uh, primarily stemming from the days it would have staved off hunger uh, in the altitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he represented cocaleros um, in their protest against uh, massive programs to, to uh, decimate the, the coca crop, claiming... Mm-hmm. Um, and, and whether legitimate or not, and indeed a lot of the, the coca growers that he was representing were in fact producing for, for cocaine producers, not yeah. for the market, but um, he captured their um, anger against a government that was seen as being complicit uh, with the U.S. government and wiping out their livelihoods. And that catapult between the popular disgust and the growing ferment at the local level and the mm-hmm. fragmentation of a, of a very traditional but very exclusionary party system and then the reaction to uh, U.S. promoted uh, coca eradication policies mm-hmm. comes Evo Morales. Because one other way you can actually layer into this, what's funny is Evo Morales' other sort of, uh, uh, I guess, political hobby horse was that he, he pro- was protesting uh, water rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in particular protesting the um, private concessions that had been granted to international companies. I believe it was Bechtel. Um, mm-hmm. Over the water concession in Bolivia, which had, as I said before, had not or indicated or insinuated before, was not providing water, affordable water, to poor mm-hmm. populations. Was and, that happened, mm-hmm. and that happened under the Structural Adjustment Program. Exactly. Exactly. So needless to say, when he was elected, actually, he clawed back a lot of those contracts and put it mm-hmm. back under state control. So you had this, this really this perfect storm uh, of, of popular discontent, rising political movements, um, a, a union, if you will, of cocoleros and uh, water-deprived uh, residents in poor shanty towns, and they really catapulted uh, this protest vote uh, and the arrival of Mas. This year, the Añez government, which took power in the coup, which happened this past year, or whatever you want to call it, uh, but the Añez government took out an IMF loan of $327 million U.S. million to help combat the COVID-19 pandemic. What effects has this re-engagement with the IMF had on Bolivia? Is this something that is likely to have longer-lasting implications? How much does this undo what the MAS party has been doing? How much is this consequential for Bolivia moving forward? I think it's going to, end, it's going to depend on what, glo- what sort of economy, global economy, we end up with when we come out of this pandemic mm-hmm. and what sort of IMF we come out with. Um, the and we really don't know, um, and I hesitate to, to, to speculate. But on one hand, the um, I think uh, what you have 
is a, a, an IMF that is bragging about the extra credit. And I have the numbers, but they're not, they're, they're in a document I'm working on actually for a book mm -hmm. chapter, um, provided massive amounts of funding. We don't know, you know, it, it may very well happen that the IMF will have to write off those loans and just forgive them because, mm -hmm. um, you know, originally the G20 or the G7 basically mm -hmm. asked, that, asked that banks begin to put in place debt forgiveness for some of the poorest indebted countries. Mm -hmm. um, uh, sorry, when was this? This was just uh, in the last year during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I don't know. We we don't know whether this will eventually be extended to more recent IMF loans and, mm -hmm. and extended to more middle income countries. Bolivia is poor. It's the poorest country in, in South America, mm -hmm. but it's still uh, it's still you know really on the cusp. And it's not one of the least developed countries mm -hmm. of, of, of Haiti or Africa. Yeah. Or like. um, so it's 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 you know it, you know if if the IMF if the world comes out of this a much more to be much more indebted, it may be may not be feasible for the IMF to begin to collect many of these loans that it issued under these very severe circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, so if that's the case, it may just end up being forgiven or reduced or whatever in the mm -hmm. IMF uh, because of uh, the depression, uh, global depression, uh, mm -hmm. because of constraints on capital, may just not be able to impose the standard recipe of, of reforms that it typically does. Um, the other thing that will depend is, is you know, will, and I'm speaking a little bit here out of wishful thinking, is will the G20 or the G7 in particular, and they're meeting uh, this year in 2021, will they reconsider uh, the role of the IMF? I mean, the IMF really, again, was never developed to serve as the lender. It was the lender of last resort, but never to be a sort of a doctor writing prescriptions, economic mm -hmm, prescriptions, mm -hmm. giving money to bail out countries, to bail out banks. Yeah, you know, it, it, it may be worth considering, and I think it, I'm hoping it will be, for uh, the original founders of the Bretton Woods agreements that created the World Bank and the IMF, whether it's it's time to revisit its role and what mm -hmm. it should be doing, because it had already morphed in ways that I think violated its original intent. Mm -hmm. uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about how it's, I mean, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier, but how it sort of morphed violating its original intent, just go a little deeper into that. So it was originally intended just to help for liquidity crisis, to prop up currencies, basically to avoid what happened in particular in Weimar, Germany, uh, between World War I and World War II. Um, and in that sense, it was supposed to be able to, to uh, back the currency so that you hadn't, didn't have a collapse or, or the pressures for inflationary policies within the government to print currency. Um, but of course, in the 70s and 80s, what it came to do was not so much in, uh, support currencies, but to support indebted governments to bail them out of or to help them, in theory, get back on their feet so they could pay back banks. And that was not what it was intended to do. It was also not intended necessarily to offer such strict um, prescriptions, uh, recipes for economic development that upon which uh, support both private and public was contingent, nor was it seen as needing before uh, working so closely with uh, the private sector. You said that uh, the G7 or the G20 put something out saying that debt should be forgiven. And so Bolivia's debt here may wind up getting wiped out and it may wind up being a wash. But if this debt isn't forgiven and uh, the debt that the Anya's government took out moves forward, what, what will be the implications of that? 
I mean, I think you're looking at a massive, massive, it's not Bolivia, it's global, right. a mm-hmm. massive debt default. Um, you know, get it, we'll, if the 19, 1980s, basically early 80s uh, to the late 80s represented that moment of when the private financial sector was at risk, now we're looking also not the, just the private sector, but also the international financial community, the I, IFIs being at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I, I think it's unknown. I mean, I, I, again, I don't. I think it's very difficult to measure the depth uh, and the impact of this crisis right now while we're in the middle of it. But mm-hmm. you know, by all accounts, we're looking at a massive uh, uh, debt crisis, and yeah. it doesn't look likely that private banks will be able to step in, especially, especially when, to be honest, when in other, you know, they're going to have far better um, profit opportunities by lending to say the European Union or lending mm-hmm. to the UK or the US um, than lending to Bolivia. So yeah. you're looking at again, another round of potential defaults. And, and what that would mean is basically Bolivia's uh, constrained ability to be able to um, uh, import goods and services, mm-hmm. uh, foodstuffs, um, you know, I mean, obviously it produces its own quinoa. Of course, most of that is sold at the Park Slope Co-op by you. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, so, but you know, it, it, it will, it'll have an impact on, um, imports, it'll have an impact on markets for its goods as well. I mean, again, making the joke about the quinoa, uh, but it will affect, uh, quinoa exports. Yeah. Um, it will affect other opportunities for investment. I mean, the, the truth is, is a lot of <clears throat> Bolivia's growth in recent years came out of the demand for natural gas where, you know, we're looking at already, um, hydrocarbon markets globally have, have contracted severely. And people are beginning to talk about this as an opportunity to build back more, more green, sustainable energy. Mm-hmm. So that a lot of uh, Bolivia's sort of, uh, it's cash cow, if you will, of natural gas may in fact be, be far mm-hmm. less important to its economy. Bolivia does also have the, the lithium though, which maybe they were hesitant to be accessing because it is, a lot of it is within protected areas of the country and you know they, I mean, they certainly don't want foreign control of it. There was that the controversy with Elon Musk saying, you know, we'll coup anyone we want. Um, but do you think that that lithium could kind of be a replacement there? The problem is with any with any mm-hmm. primary uh, product based economy, it has limited potential for broader yeah. development. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a mining and mineral. You know, yeah. that's been that's been Bolivia's story since it was the Spanish conquistadors and silver, and then. Um, so, you know, and then now tin uh, and, and to a certain extent copper, that's just going to shift. So that will not have the broad impact. I mean, it may provide some revenue, uh, hard currency, but it's not going to, it's not the means by which you develop a, an economy in a sustainable manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you think that, uh, that Bolivia ultimately kind of needs to, needs to have, is, needs to have this, this debt forgiven and sort of the global economy, this debt needs to be forgiven or else it's kind of it's, it's, just, it's not a great it's they, they don't have a great path out of of this crisis it's not a question of forgiving it's a question of sort of fundamentally rethinking what the mm-hmm. role of global finance is yeah okay um, and 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 the burden that governments whether you know bolivia peru brazil to a certain extent which is heavily indebted although that's a different um animal because it does have more ways of growing its way out of it mm-hmm. um how much we're willing to burden them for a pandemic that is not their fault. I mean, you, one could argue that the 
you know, the, the, the drunken rates of borrowing that occur in the 70s mm-hmm. were the faults of, you know, misguided leaders and, and, and wildly optimistic, arguably corrupt banks. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not anyone's fault necessarily. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there have been cases of corruption and so on, but, you know, this is, you can't, you can't blame the pandemic on bad leadership. Yeah. Um, and then uh, as a final question, would you consider the IMF relationship with Bolivia and a lot of these other countries to be neo-colonial in nature? Like, what do you think of that term being used to describe these these types of arrangements? I mean, you know, it's important to recognize that um, these countries got themselves in their own mess. Um, maybe the political leadership, Eva uh, Morales and others, weren't necessarily in charge at the time that these heavy loans were taken out. And so therefore, are, you know, governments who come later um, are going to impose, you know, is it fair that they get, they're forced to swallow uh, medicine for, for an illness that they didn't create themselves, but it was created, it was of Bolivia's making. No one forced them to take this bank money. Um, and the IMF programs, for whatever you may think about them, um, they, you know, they were based on perhaps um, ex- overly aggressive and, and, um, cookie cutter type approaches, but they were based on sort of basic principles of macroeconomics. We can argue whether they were. And, you know, one of the things I didn't mention is, you know, inflation, especially at those levels, who it hurts most is, is the middle of working class. Now, mm-hmm. Bolivia, 60% of Bolivia's working class is in the informal sector. It's not on a wage salary, mm-hmm. but, you know, inflation is effectively a tax on the middle class. Mm-hmm. So there were, you know, there were those who were hurt. And in fact, if you look at the Gini coefficient of inequality in, across Latin America, it completely improved. Rates of inequality shrunk dramatically simply by virtue of ending hyperinflation, mm-hmm. which is why you know, even in, you know, in places like Bolivia, in places like Brazil, to a certain extent, Argentina, though we're beginning to see that wear off, you know, it is still uh, uh, the third rail in politics to sort of start to really see inflation start to creep up. So mm. uh, neocolonial, I'm not sure. Imperialist, I'm not sure. I think it's, you know, one could argue they're, the roots of this crisis stem from a, a uh, long-standing process of exploitation um, that goes back to colonial eras. But that's you know it, it is you know it remains to be seen how you dig yourself out of that. That was Christopher Sabantini, a senior fellow for Latin America at Chatham House on the relationship between the IMF and Bolivia, as well as other Latin American countries. In the next episode, I will be interviewing Naomi Chikanya, an economist researcher with the Labor and Economic Development Research Institute of Zimbabwe, to speak about IMF involvement in Zimbabwe, and specifically its effects on labor in the country. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the Fig2 Podcast.